We're starting in, uh, we're, start, we're continuing in a new sermon series this morning called Unmentionables, uh, where we are talking about some of the things uh, that we don't like to talk about, uh, both in church and outside of church. These are some of the d- more difficult sides of life, the, the negative emotions or thoughts that, that unfortunately can plague us a lot of times. And the church ought to be better at addressing. We ought to be able to talk about these things and make uh, churches places where people can come and, and discuss these kinds of things openly and, and really begin to deal with them. And last week, Kay kicked us off with a wonderful message on regret and, and how um, just because it's a part of your story and a part of your past doesn't mean that it has to continue to define you. Uh, I encourage you to go back and listen to that message uh, online or watch it online. Um, today, we're going to talk about the subject of guilt what it means to feel guilty, and what do we do with self-guilt in the context of our faith. I think a lot of us walk through our daily lives feeling guilty a lot. And, and I don't believe this just because of my own experience. This past week, I, um, I was online and reading an article on psychology today, and it, it was an article by Dr. Guy Winch. I have no idea who this guy is, so if you like hate this guy randomly, like, I'm sorry I'm citing his article right now. But um, uh, Dr. Guy Winch said that guilt is a very common feeling and emotion in adults, uh, that the average adult spends about five hours a week, he was citing a, a study, that uh, the average adult spends about five hours a week feeling guilty. That's a lot of time. That's a lot of time, and that becomes an issue when guilt is associated with some really, really negative uh, parts of who we are, too. It can lead to a decrease. Another study he cited said it leads to a decrease in concentration, productivity, and creativity. And so five hours a week, we're feeling those, those guilty feelings, and it's causing our concentration, our productivity, our creativity to begin to plummet. And it gets even worse. They, there was a study he was also citing that... that was done with college students because college students will do anything for a buck, right? Uh, they're great prey for psycho- psychological uh, experiments, right? Um, and, and so he's, he's citing this study about college students that um, they had this group of college students, and some were made to feel guilty during the qu- course of this experiment, and some were not. And at the end of the experiment, they, they were given the option to t- take, you know, sort of receive a, a gift or a prize or something, and their options were either DVDs or, or music downloads or, or school supplies, right? And you know how much college kids love school supplies. Well, the ones that were made to feel guilty, almost to a T, they took school supplies at the end. But the ones who were not made to feel guilty, almost to a T, took DVDs and and music downloads. You might think, well, that's kind of silly. But it reveals something about our ability to enjoy our lives when we're feeling guilty. When you feel guilty, you kind of feel like you should punish yourself. Well, I don't deserve DVDs and music downloads. I need to go get school supplies because I feel really bad about who I am. It can go even darker. There is another college uh, student uh, experiment that was done, and they discovered what was called the Dobby effect. Any Harry Potter fans in the room? Kelly? I know, yeah, she's being very quiet. She hates I just said her name right now. Um, I know there's some big Harry Potter fans in the room. Dobby was the little house elf character that would punish himself physically. He would slam his head into the wall or hit himself when he felt like he had done something wrong. Uh, some psychologists, they discovered the Dobby effect, and, and what it was was they had college students, and part of the experiment was they could withhold a winning lottery ticket from a fellow student, which sounds like a big deal, but the lottery tickets were only worth a couple of bucks. I mean, the prize, meaning, was only a couple of bucks, but they had the choice to sort of keep it for themselves or to give it to another student. The ones who withheld the ticket and felt guilty as a result would be willing to subject themselves to electric shocks because they felt bad. So, again, at first it might sound like, you know, five hours a week feeling guilty, you know, who really cares? But when, when, when guilt can lead us to, like, physically punish ourselves because we feel that negatively about who we are, 
even over something as simple as a couple dollars of a lottery ticket. People who feel guilty, the last thing he cited was that they, on, they um, report themselves as feeling heavier and having less energy than their non-guilty counterparts. How many of us walk through our weeks and our days and our hours feeling heavier and slower and less energetic and wanting to punish ourselves because the God's honest truth is we just feel guilty. We feel like um, we're not as good as we could be. We feel like we're taking up space. You apply that to a faith life, and it can lead us to this really, really difficult question that I have a feeling that everyone here has wrestled with at some point. Maybe you have this past week or this past 24 hours, or maybe you had this question on your heart when you walked in the room this morning. This is a question I've asked myself too many times in my own life, and and it sounds like this. How could God love someone like me? Have you ever asked yourself that question? How could God love someone like me? There have been seasons in my life where I felt like I was so worthless, so beyond love. and And I went to church and I heard about this, you know, universally loving God. And I go, how in the world does a God who's this cosmically awesome love me? Guilt's a dangerous thing. And this morning, I want to turn our attention to a scripture that is found in the book of Romans, really the letter to the church in Rome. We call it the book of Romans. It's a letter written by Paul to a church in Rome, and Paul is trying to address how it is that God's love could be that large. Because he's talking to a church that is really, really divided in these sort of two basic camps of Jews and Gentiles. Jews being the people, the Jewish people from the you know, Israel region. And the Gentiles meaning everybody else, all the other people in the Greco-Roman Empire who sort of looked and spoke and, and lived more in the Greek culture. And the Roman church was sort of divided because of a lot of other historical things that we won't get into right now. Uh, but essentially had these two camps of Jews and Gentiles. And, and the Jews really wanted to hear that God was for them because for thousands of years God had been for them and if the Christian message was going to say that God was no longer for the Jews or God no longer upheld the Jewish promise, well then that was going to be a really big issue. But the Gentiles, they needed to hear that God was for something bigger than just the Jewish people, that God was about something larger than just the Jewish faith, that God was about the whole world because that's where they lived. And Paul's effort is to be a peacemaker in this church and to say clearly and succinctly that yes, God is for you, and yes, God is for you, and yes, God is for all of you. God's love really is big enough. And he's going to address this question that we have 2,000 years later of how could, God some, how could God love someone like me? Paul's going to address this. He's going to do all of this in six verses. That's impressive. It's going to take me about 25 minutes to unpack it. Y'all ready? Yeah, this is fun. The, the game will be well underway by the time we're out of here. Before we dig into the scripture this morning, let's say a word of prayer. Um, We pray before we read scripture because we believe that this is not simply words on a piece of paper, that this is the living word of God, and it comes alive for us, and we invite the Holy Spirit to be a part of it. So that's why we pray before we read scripture. Let's pray together now. Gracious God, we give you thanks for this day. We give you thanks for another day that we get to rise, step out of our beds, come to a place like Lover's Lane to be with our friends, to be a part of a loving community who can meet us in our questions and our doubts and our fears, can meet us with grace and with love, who can remind us that we truly are worth your love. God, we ask that you would be a part of this holy moment of reading scripture, that you would make these words come alive for us, make them leap off of the pages and off of the screens and into our hearts 
so they might change the way that we live. In your son's holy name we pray. Amen. We're going to begin reading in chapter 3, verse 21. This is 21 through 26. Paul's letter to the church in Rome. He says, but now, apart from the law, the righteousness of God, actually, I'm reading the wrong translation here, but let's read the one on the screen so I don't confuse you. But now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which is confirmed by the law and the prophets. God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There's no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of God's glory. But all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Through his faithfulness, God displayed Jesus as the place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. He did this to demonstrate his righteousness in passing over sins that happened before during the time of God's patient tolerance. He also did this to demonstrate that he is righteous in the present time and to treat the one who has faith in Jesus as righteous. The word of God for the people of God. Let us say thanks be to God. Amen. So, as with much of Paul's writings, that was thick, yeah? That was some dense stuff. I'm sure there was more than one word or line in there that had you going, no, wait, what, what is he after here? So, this is going to be one of those sermons where we kind of walk through line by line, and we're going to go up in the clouds a little bit and, and, and do some sort of heavy seminary theology stuff, but I promise we will come back to reality before the sermon is over, okay? You ready to go on this journey with me? It's going to be fun. So, he starts by saying, but, and let's stop right there, right? But, whenever someone says but, right, that tells you that this idea is connected to the last idea, right? And so Paul frequently sort of writes in this sort of stream of consciousness, and it's really hard to just pluck one of Paul's sayings out of the rest of the thing and to hope that you can make sense of it on its own. Uh, you almost always have to take Paul in, in, in whole if you try to take stuff out and say, whoa, whoa, what's this mean? You're going to have a hard time. So when Paul says but, what he's just finished talking about is he's been addressing for three chapters now almost, he's been addressing the Jewish people in the church in Rome, and he's, and he's been trying to make a case for why Christ Christ as the Messiah is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophecy and the Jewish promise, that, that Jesus is the promise that God made with Abraham, that we don't throw out the Old Testament, we don't throw out the Jewish tradition just because we believe in Jesus, because that was sort of a developing thought and theory in, in the early Christian church, especially in these more Greek areas that were further away from Jerusalem, was this idea of like, well, what do we really need that Old Testament for? We've got this shiny new one now, you know, right? We, we've got all this new stuff, we've got these new beliefs, we've got this new Messiah, why, why do we need to bother with all this old Jewish stuff, because keep in mind, most people living in the Greco-Roman Empire were not Jewish. It didn't make any sense to them. And Paul's going to say very clearly, you cannot understand Jesus if you don't understand the law and the prophets. If you don't understand the story of Abraham, the story of David, the story of Moses, if you don't understand these things, and you can't really understand who Jesus is. And he talks about how Jesus does not cancel the law, but Jesus is the fulfillment of the law. This is something that Jesus says in the Gospels. That you don't get to divorce Jesus from the law. It's not like the law was this really bad thing that Jesus came to fix. The law was something that was, that was good but not enough. And Jesus became the fulfillment of it. And what Paul gets into here in the beginning of chapter 3 where he says but, right before he says but, he's making the case that all the law can do is point out how unrighteous we really are. It is the rubric. It is the rules. It is the, the measuring bar that reminds all of us that none of us are perfect, right? Because there's 600 some odd rules in the law of in the laws of Leviticus and Deuteronomy, and nobody in this room is keeping all of them right now. 
Absolutely not. I'm sure your cloths are mixed or something, right? Um, None of us are keeping all these rules. So what Paul is trying to say is that it's not the law that can make us righteous. All the law can do is show us that we are sinful and unrighteous, which is still helpful. It's good to be pointed out that that you're not a perfect person, but it's not going to get you into heaven. So that's why he says, but, and he goes on to say this, but... Now God's righteousness has been revealed apart from the law, which is confirmed by the law and the prophets. So he's saying Jesus is confirmed by the law and the prophets. They're connected. God's righteousness comes through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ for all who have faith in him. There's no distinction. So it's not like those who still live by the law are better than those who don't abide all the laws in the law. He says all have sinned and fall short of God's glory. Now that is a substantial statement to make especially for someone like Paul. Paul, you may or may not know, earlier in his life was a leader in the Jewish faith. He was known then by the name Saul, and Saul was a really good Jew, and he really cared about keeping the law, and he really cared about the measuring stick, but when Paul was Saul, he thought that if you measured up differently, that made you a better or worse person, and, and he took that into a really dark place and would actually persecute and even kill people in the Christian movement because they didn't measure up. And so for Saul to become Paul and for Paul to now say, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, what he's done is he's just leveled the playing field. And there's a distinction here to be made between sinful actions and sinful nature. We're getting up in the clouds now. Obviously, different actions have different weight. Telling a white lie to your friend is not the same as murder, okay? That's confirmed in Scripture as well. But when it comes to how we as human beings are innately sinful, how there's something about our nature that is corrupted, Paul says there's no distinctions there. All of us are sinful. All of us have fallen short of the glory of God. None of us are perfect. If the measuring bar is God's perfect righteousness, nobody is there. All of us fall short. This is really, really important for us to understand this because what this creates now is is Paul's making the case for a universal need of Jesus' righteousness. Because if I can't get to God all on my own, If I can't get to become God's perfect righteousness all on my own, then how the heck am I supposed to ever be one with God? How am I ever supposed to be in an eternal relationship with God if I can't get there all on my own? If you're telling me, Paul, that the law, these rules aren't going to get me there, then what's going to get me there? And he says, let me tell you about Jesus. Let me tell you about Jesus. Jesus is God's perfect righteousness, he says, in the flesh here on earth. And he's going to go on, and he's, in, in four verses now, he's going to lay out what we call theory of atonement. He's going to lay out how Jesus atones for our sins in four verses. Are you ready for Paul to tell you about Jesus? He goes on to say this. All are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Through his faithfulness. God displayed Jesus, and we're going to stop there for just a second. He says, all are treated as righteous freely by his grace because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Because of a ransom that was paid by Christ Jesus. Right there, Paul is is beginning this explanation of how Jesus atones for our sins. When we talk about atonement in the church, that's that's a fancy word, but if you break it down, at one meant. This is, how does Jesus make us one with God? 
Because we can't be perfect. We can't assume God's righteous perfection all on our own. And that creates a problem if, if, you, if you work with Christian theology and Judeo-Christian theology. That creates a problem because God is super perfect. Yeah? Like God's really, really perfect. God is so perfect, in fact, that, that there is a part of God that has wrath when God witnesses imperfection. Okay, now I just brought up a word that probably has people going, what are we talking about? Um, who loves talking about the wrath of God? Anybody? Yeah, it's a fun topic. I want to try to redeem the wrath of God for just a moment this morning. Will y'all, will y'all go with me on this little rabbit trail for a second? Um, so the wrath of God normally gets talked about in terms of it being God's anger, right? The wrath of God and the pillar of fire and rah, you know. And normally we talk about wrath of God in Old Testament terms. That, you know, this is angry, vengeful God, you know. That's not what the wrath of God is about. The wrath of God, a better way to understand the wrath of God would be to, to say God's uncompromising desire for justice. So when God in the Old Testament looks down upon the earth and sees not just imperfection, but deep, harmful injustice taking place, when he sees the poor being oppressed, when he sees widows and orphans being harmed, when he sees people, slaves being taken advantage of, what God feels is wrath. And it's not sort of this blanket anger at humanity. It is a targeted anger even, even a divine, you could almost say hatred for any level of injustice. Because God is perfect and righteous and God's kingdom will not allow any injustice. You don't get to go to heaven and keep being a little bit racist. Or a little bit sexist. Or a little bit homophobic. Or a little bit hateful. Or a little bit spiteful. No, when you are in God's kingdom, injustice ceases to exist. Which is a problem when God's trying to bring his kingdom here. And you look around in the world and what do we see everywhere? What do we see? Injustice. So there we've got a theological problem. God wants to spend eternity with us. God wants to bring his kingdom here. And yet here is sin and injustice everywhere. And we can't get to God on our own. We can't become righteous and holy and perfect on our own. And so we go, wow, that's really a problem. How are we ever going to get there? And Paul says, let me introduce you to Jesus. He says, Jesus pays this ransom on our behalf. What he's, he's using this language that's going to be adopted by theologians for 2,000 years to come. This language of atonement, that it's, there's something about what Jesus does, specifically on the cross, that allows for this unjust, inhumane, sinful people and place to all of a sudden be elevated and, and, and to be brought at one with God once again. Do you want to hear what it is? Do you want to hear what, what Paul says makes all the difference? He says, through his faithfulness, God displayed Jesus as the place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. I'm going to say that again. Through his faithfulness, God displayed Jesus as the place of sacrifice where mercy is found by means of his blood. Now, I know that talking about blood in church can make people uneasy, but I want you to stick with me. There is a reason Paul is using this language, and I want to explain a little bit about it. This so in order to understand what, what Paul's talking about here, we have to understand ancient Jewish temple practice. We've got a lot of ancient Jewish temple practice scholars. You're going to be really bored at this point. Um, 
So way back in the days of Moses and Aaron, Aaron was the first high priest of the Jewish people. They would have this, this high holy day called the Day of Atonement, still celebrated. And one of the things they would do on the Day of Atonement was that Aaron, and then subsequently the high priests after him and the generations gone by, um, would take a, a prized animal, like a fatted calf or something, and, and would sacrifice them and then would sprinkle the blood over the Ark of the Covenant. Now, the Ark of the Covenant, we'll see it. This is a, I think this was a picture taken um, of Aaron. Yeah, there it is. So that's a historical picture of the Ark of the Covenant. So this is, this is where, you know, the, the Spirit of God was kept. This, this was the holiest of holies for the Jewish people. And you see that part on top with the cherubim? That's what those things with the wings are, the cherubim. That's sort of this lid covering. And that was called the hylasterion, or the mercy seat. Hylasterion, an old Greek word. That's what it was called in the Greek version of the Old Testament. It was this mercy seat, is what they would call it. And it would sit on top of the ark. Aaron would sprinkle the sacrificial blood on the, on the mercy seat, and then that would designate the ark as holy, it would designate the ark as righteous, and it would designate the ark as the place where God's spirit was to be found, and it would also be a sign to the people that they had received mercy as a result. This was the, the, the ritual of the Day of Atonement. Paul says that Jesus is now our hylasterion. Jesus is our mercy seat. What does that mean? If you take that metaphor and you run with it just a little bit, Paul is saying that instead of the Ark of the Covenant being the place where holiness and righteousness and God's Spirit is found, that on the cross, Jesus becomes the sacrifice. His blood is spilt and sprinkled on the earth. If Jesus is the mercy seat, then what that means, if you run with that metaphor, is that the earth, the dirt of the earth, is now taking the place of the Ark of the Covenant. No longer is God restrained and contained inside this little box. God's Spirit and holiness and righteousness is now everywhere. In all of the earth, because Jesus has assumed the role of the mercy seat. He is the sacrifice. He is the lid covering. He is the one that communicates holiness and righteousness in, in God's presence to all of the earth, even the dust that his blood was spilled upon. Now, that's a radical shift for a Jewish leader to make. He's saying, yes, remember, remember this, this wonderful day of atonement we celebrated in the Jewish tradition? Well, guess what? Jesus has now opened these floodgates to all of the world. The whole world is the Ark of the Covenant now. The whole world is the holiest of holies. The whole world is God's presence. Wow. He did that in a verse. <laughs> That's impressive. It changes the way that I understand my own my own vision of the cross and what it represents and why that moment was so important because if you're a Jewish person seeing the day of atonement up on the cross and the earth is now the ark of the covenant that's going to change your faith the cross becomes critically important in that moment now I think sometimes we can misunderstand God's heart in the Bible and we can misunderstand God's heart in the in the moment of the cross in the following way I've heard it preached or said in churches um, that, uh, you know, there was this Old Testament kind of angry God, and, and, and he was real into punishment and vengeance and, and violence, but, but then Jesus came and made God a whole heck of a lot nicer, right? Like, all of a sudden, God was like, oh, I'm so mad, and Jesus was like, hey, chill out, where he was like, oh, okay, I guess I will be loving and kind after all. Like, that's not how it works, 
One of the most fundamental basic ideas about God is that God is constant and unchanging, that, that God is eternal, meaning that God exists outside of time, that God is the same as God was, is, and ever shall be. And so to say to yourself, well, you know, maybe I can understand God loving me because, um, because of what Jesus did for me. Now God sees me as something worth loving. You know, Jesus got in the way. Jesus paid his sacrifice for me, so, so now God loves me because of who Jesus was. No, I mean, that, that can sound helpful, but you've still got this really angry, vengeful God that would punish you if he could, but oh, that Jesus got in the way. It's the love of the God of the Old Testament, the God of eternity, the God who knew you and loved you before you were even a breath or a whisper or a thought. The love of that God compelled that God to become Jesus Christ. And to be up on the cross and to offer that God's love as a mercy seat offering. It's not that, that, that God went from hateful to loving. It's always been love. As Paul says here, it was this time of God's patient tolerance. It's not like all of a sudden because of Jesus, nay, yay, we get new God. New God's so fun. Takes us to baseball games. No. It's the same love of the same God that has always been there and always will be. God saw you as a child worth loving before Jesus Christ was born, before the cross entered the picture, and God will love you as a child worth loving all of the days of your life and then some. And so you might be going, wow, it's really interesting theology. <laughs> so let's bring it back down. Let's bring it back down from seminary land and, and, and talk about what does this do for me tomorrow? What does this do for my week? What does this do with how I wake up and, and get out of bed in the morning? Guilt. I, I don't think that guilt is a totally bad thing, right? Sometimes you should feel guilty. Sometimes you should feel guilty. When you do bad things, you, you should probably feel a little bit guilty. If you never feel guilt about anything ever, no matter how bad of things you've done to you, yourself, or anybody else, we call that being a sociopath. You don't want to do that. I'm guilt-free. Like, that's frightening. Like, no. You, when you do bad things, like, you should feel a little bit bad. That's called being a human, right? Um, but I also uh, believe uh, what they believe in toxicology. I found this interesting this past week. This is one of my rabbit trails on Wikipedia. Anyone do Wikipedia rabbit trails ever? You're like, click that link, click that link, click that link. Click. How did I end up here? You know, um, so I was learning about toxicology, and there was, uh, there was a, a famous scholar in toxicology called Paracelsus, I think. Yeah, Paracelsus, and, 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 and he was sort of the godfather of toxicology, and, and he had this sort of mantra that became the mantra of toxicology, and it was this, the dose makes the poison. What does he mean by that? The dose makes the poison. His point was anything can kill you if the dosage is high enough, right? Anything is a poison if you ingest enough of it. You know someone has died from eating too many carrots? The dose makes the poison. Um, I think guilt, the dose makes the poison. A little bit goes a long way. Guilt can cause us to do some good things. It can make us make amends with people whom we've hurt. It can cause us to say, I'm sorry, when we need to seek forgiveness. It can cause us to repent and to lead a better life when we stand convicted by the Holy Spirit of like, wow, I really should not be living this way. But a little bit goes a long way. And if you drink too much of the poison, it can bring your life to a grinding halt. 
And you can find yourself subject to the Dobby effect. And you can find yourself heavy and weary laden with no energy. And, and that is not God's intent for your life. The Holy Spirit doesn't convict us to bring us to a grinding halt and to make the rest of our life a punishment. A little bit goes a long way. The dose makes the poison. When Saul became Paul, he had two options. Can you imagine being someone who had committed murder against the children of God? And standing convicted of that reality. He could have very easily ended his own life. Crushed by the guilt, but instead... He walks into a new life because he realizes what he's been given as a gift. And he becomes Paul. And he dedicates the rest of his life, as Paul would other, say in other places in his letters, I have died to myself and now it's Christ who lives in me. He, he made his life a living sacrifice for the God who'd saved him. I was, I was thinking about Saul becoming Paul and, and what it means to embrace the gift of a new life. I could not help but think about the story of the boys in Thailand and their coach who were saved this past week. Are we all familiar with the story? If you're not, there were 12 boys and a coach who were stuck in a, in, a, in a cave who had gone swimming. And if you ever think about going cave diving, don't. It's like the single most dangerous thing you can do. And they ended up in this very dangerous, precarious place in this cave in Thailand. And there was a, a the, you know, once the authorities became aware of what had happened, th there became a big question of how are we going to get them out of there? And of course, this past week, they got them out of there. Yay, hallelujah. But before they did, you know, there was a concern of how are we going to keep them alive long enough to be rescued? And that's when a man named Saman Kunan, we're going to put his uh, picture on the screens here. Saman Kunan was a Thai Navy SEAL, and he had volunteered to be a part of the rescue efforts. And what Salman Kunan did was he went and he took them oxygen when it became a, a fear that they wouldn't have enough air to breathe where they were. So he, he, he went through these treacherous caves. He got to them. He gave them the oxygen they needed. And on his way back, he ran out of oxygen and ended up dying. And so you may have seen his picture on the news or on social media. But this is Salman Kunan. This is the man who gave his life to make sure that these boys could breathe. Literally gave his last breath so that they could breathe. Now, I imagine these boys, as soon as they made it out of the caves, I, I imagine when they learned that Saman Kunan had died, that there was some pretty crushing guilt that set in. We would call that survivor's guilt. But I hope that someone in their lives would, would be able to look at them and say, you would not honor his sacrifice by swimming back into that cave. You wouldn't honor his sacrifice by staying in a position of self-guilt. You wouldn't honor his sacrifice by punishing yourself because he made the choice to save you. And they might say, but we weren't worth it. Who are we? We're a bunch of boys. We're soccer players. This, you know, this is a Thai Navy SEAL. He had a family. He had people who loved him. How are we worth it? And the response to that is, that wasn't your choice to make. You're not the one who defines your worth. Saman Kunan defined their worth. He said every one of them was absolutely worth it. And I'm certain he would do it again over and over if he had to. If you've ever wondered to yourself, how could God, I'm not worth that kind of sacrifice. That wasn't your decision to make. Thanks be to God, we have never been in charge of defining our own worth. Mine would be down here. Where would yours be? 
I'm so thankful I have a Savior who looked at me in my position of guilt and self-hatred and self-loathing and said, I love you so much and you are so worth it. And I would do it again and again and again and again because I love you so stinking much. And so this morning we all have a choice. We have a choice not unlike Saul had a choice when he became Paul. Not unlike these boys have a choice now. We have a choice of what we will do with this gift that we've been given. Will we swim back into the cave because we don't think we're worth it? Because we know that we're guilty. Because we can't comprehend the kind of cosmic love it took for God to get up on that cross for us. Or will we embrace this gift that we've been given and breathe full the air that's been breathed into our lungs? Will we embrace this new life that we've been offered and live as people who've been set free? Not so that we can make our lives about ourselves, but so that we can make our lives a living offering, a living sacrifice for the one who became our mercy seat. That's the choice we have this day. Won't you join me in running towards a new life found in the gift of Christ Jesus? Let us pray. Holy and precious God, we confess that there are so many times, so many days, maybe even right this moment, that we do not feel worthy of your gift or your love or your sacrifice for us. In fact, we feel so unworthy, we might even feel like rejecting it. We might even feel like swimming back into the cave, punishing ourselves because we know that's where we belong. And God, this morning, we need to receive the gift of your mercy and your love. To know that for you, justice is mercy to know that in your eyes we have always been worth it even in the moments that we feel at our lowest that we feel at our worst you've looked down and said that is my child whom I would die for a thousand times over can we receive that gift from you this morning God can we receive that gift in a way that transforms who we are and what we're about So that we can see this life not as our own, but as yours. A life that is a living sacrifice. So that when people see us, they would see something is different. That it's not ourselves who live, but it's Christ who lives in us. Can we extend this kind of grace and mercy to people around us? Can we find those whom you put in our path who need a word of grace, who need a word of mercy, who need a word of love, who need a hug, who need a kiss on the cheek, who need someone to look at them and say, you are worthy to be loved. God, we ask that you would breathe your life into our lungs, that you would send us out of this place, not as the people who arrive, but as new creations that every morning we would rise as something beautiful and new. That we would know we are worthy to be loved. That this world is your holy place and that your spirit abounds in it.
of this, we pray in your holy son's precious and resurrected name. Amen.